Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. This morning, we will be going through, beginning a new series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is a wonderful book. It's one of my favorites. It's a short book. You could read the whole thing in 30 minutes, but it would take a lifetime to mine the riches that it lays out for us in Christ. Acts 19 tells us that Paul had ministered in the city of Ephesus, for two years. He taught daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And he knew that it was a city that was full of both prosperity and full of evil. The temple of Artemis was there. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, along with its hundreds of temple prostitutes. That both speaks to its prosperity and to the wickedness in the city. It was a city that was full of magic. And when many were converted, they brought their magic scrolls together and burned them to the cost of 50,000 drachmas worth, silver coins worth of scrolls that were burnt in one day when people saw Jesus' power. But we can imagine how difficult it would be to be a Christian in such a place Paul knows, so he writes this letter to encourage them in that to to know the treasures that they have in Christ and to seek seek to help them to live holy while they yet live in Ephesus. Now, most of Paul's letters have a specific reason he's writing, a, a clear need that he's writing in response to. Sometimes he addresses problems or questions in the church. Sometimes he writes to offer correction. Sometimes he writes to encourage in the midst of persecution. But one of the things that makes Ephesians so special is that there is no easily discerned need that Paul is writing in response to. Instead, it has been described as a manual in basic Christianity. In fact, it would be hard to imagine a more perfect, more complete short introduction to Christian faith and life than what we have here in these six chapters. The first three chapters of which are filled with teaching about what God has done for us in Christ. The last three chapters are filled with instruction about what we are to do in response to what God has done. So the, and another way to say that the first half of Ephesians is about Christian faith. The last half is about Christian life. The first half is about what we are to believe. The second half is about what we are to do. About almost every major doctrine is here, and yet Paul still has time to teach us about the offices of the church, about gifts, about marriage, parenting, work, and spiritual warfare. So I'm very excited uh, to be starting this with you. One last thing I want to mention before I read is that Paul, despite all his joy that you will see as I read these words, I want to remind you that Paul is writing from prison. So this joy that he is expressing is in the midst of persecution. It's in the midst of suffering. It's something that suffering and persecution cannot take away. 
from you. So this is good news. I'm going to read Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, but I will be focusing particularly on the first six verses. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this word that you've given us. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might understand it a little better today, that we might draw closer to you, and that our will might be more and more conformed to your plan that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Paul begins this letter with this amazing opening, Uh, it would probably be good for me to step back and tell you a little bit about how remarkable it is. Now, it's probably been been a while since you wrote a letter by hand. Maybe some of you never have. I see some younger faces out there. But usually, when we write a letter, there is a expected format. So in English, we would say, dear so and so. And then we would then we would write. So we start off with who we're writing to, and we might hold them in suspense the whole time until the very end to say who it was who wrote. If we change that format just a little, you'll notice. So I say dear to somebody I don't even, I don't even care about. Dear sir or madam. I don't even know what you are, and I'll say dear. But if you change it just a little bit and say dearest, then you know it's, it's very different. So it's kind of important for us to know a little bit of the expected format for new letters in the New Testament so we see when Paul makes a change, it jumps out at us. Now, it makes a little bit more sense the way they did letters then. It would start off with who was writing. So as soon as you open it or it was read to the church, they would know who it was. Paul, an apostle, of Christ Jesus. Now, they know Paul. 
He's been there for two years. But he identifies himself by his office and also that he was called to be an apostle by the will of God. What he's emphasizing here is not so much that he's an apostle, although this is coming down with apostolic authority as a representative from God, but he's emphasizing God's will, which you'll see all through our our passage this morning, God's purpose, God's will. Paul was chosen to be an apostle by God's will. It was a remarkable story. You may remember some of it. Paul had been an, an extremely zealous persecutor of the church. He was the last guy you would expect to be an apostle. This is kind of God's way of doing things. He usually sends out missionaries who used to be terrible. So he picks Paul to be the missionary to the Gentiles. He picked the woman at the well to kind of be the missionary to the Samaritans. She had no friends, and yet God chose her. Uh, He chose uh, the demoniac in the Decapolis. He he said, go and tell everyone what wonderful things God has done for you. He does this on purpose to show his power, his choice, his will, his mercy. If God has saved this person, then he can save me too. If God saves Paul and uses him, he can use you too. And so God has sent him out. This is part of his great plan for the church. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to, and then here we have in the letter, who it would be written to. The saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So we have these two addresses for them, really. They are in Ephesus. They are in Christ Jesus. That's the case for every Christian. You are in Mount Pleasant or in Charleston or wherever town near here that you are from, but you are also in Christ. That's how the Christians position in this world. We are part of this world, but we're not of this world. Or in the world, but not of it. And this, this book is going to tell us how to live the first half in Christ, what it means that we are in Christ. The second half will tell us how to live in Mount Pleasant, or for them, how to live in Ephesus. And so it's a very practical thing. And we sometimes want to jump forward to that practical part. You know, what am I supposed to do this week? How am I supposed to live in Mount Pleasant now? I ask you to be patient because this is Paul's pattern as well. He will start off by teaching us about what God has done. And then once he gets the gospel firmly in our minds, he, he from that shows us what we are to do. So it's of the utmost importance that we don't reverse the order. This is the logic of the gospel, that grace comes first. God did not send the Ten Commandments down into Egypt and say, keep this, and once you keep it well enough, I'll rescue you. No, he rescues them from slavery and then tells them, this is my law for you. I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And so it is with most of Paul's letters. He will begin by teaching us and then uh, what what we are to believe and what God has done and then what we are to do. 
Now he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a, one of those little changes, a dearest moment in the letter, because the normal greeting would be, would be greetings, something like kyrene in Greek, but he has changed it to kairos, charis, grace, grace and peace. So it's a Christian greeting that he has somehow changed the normal letter a little bit and then added the Jewish greeting as well. Peace, shalom, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And these will be themes throughout the letter. It's his normal opening, but we'll see grace through Jesus Christ, that our salvation is all of grace, and then we have peace with God, peace with one another, you'll see later on in chapter 2. And then, as soon as he begins, after this point, he would usually have a thanksgiving. You would see it in about verse 2 or 3 of most of Paul's letters, a thanksgiving. But that thanksgiving doesn't come until verse 15. In between it, there is this long sentence. It might be the longest sentence I know of, and probably the most remarkable sentence that's ever been written. It is this outburst of praise from verse 3 through verse 14. It's many sentences in English, so we can try to comprehend it and break it down in pieces, but it's one sentence in the Greek, 202 words long. And it is an amazing sentence that goes from eternity past to eternity future. But you'll notice as you try to wrestle with the grammar of it and to try to figure out what it's saying, that there is some progression. He begins by speaking of the work of God the Father. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in particular through verse 6. And then he will talk about how in Christ... God has re- redeemed us all the way down to verse 12. And then verse 13 and 14, how by the Holy Spirit he applies that, that work and he seals us as a guarantee uh, of our salvation. And it ends, each of these sections ends with this refrain, to the praise of the glory of his grace, or to the praise of his glory. Verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. And so this is the refrain that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all working towards together, the same purpose that we might praise him. And so in this long sentence, we have really three, three notes that, that come out. First, that all things are happening according to God's purpose, God's plan. You'll see plan, his will, his purpose repeated throughout this whole sentence. Secondly, that that purpose is accomplished in Jesus Christ, that all the blessings that we have in this plan are found in him and accomplished by him. And then thirdly, we'll see goal of his plan. So we see what his plan was, the manner of his plan being accomplished, and the goal of his plan. That's what this long sentence is about. But it's a long list of wonderful blessings that God has given us. It begins like this. 
This is kind of like a title for this whole section. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's one of my favorite verses right there. God, blessed be the God who has blessed us. You see, his, it begins with, a, with praise to God. His blessing to us is different than our blessing to him. His blessing to us is enumerated throughout the rest of this long sentence. Our blessing to him is just praise, acceptance of what he's done, submission to it, worship for who he is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. So everything that God, everything in the world, everything that he's made is is from God. It teaches God. It comes back to God. Our, Our worship, our blessing, the good things that God has given us must be answered with this gravity that pulls us back to the Father of lights from whom every good thing ever came. And then we see here that he has blessed us in a particular location, you might say, or in a particular person, in Christ. Christ is not just a, like a vending machine that there are all the blessings in and we can pick one out. Christ himself is the, the person in whom we are blessed. It's, it's all encompassed in him. So if you have Christ, brothers and sisters, you have every spiritual blessing there could be. Every spiritual blessing that ever was is there in Christ and belongs to everyone who has Christ. If you do not have Christ, then you are you're desperately poor. You have no blessings because there are no blessings to be found outside of him. You might have, yes, a nice car. You might have a nice job. Uh, You might have good health. But the spiritual blessings that he's talking about here, none of them are to be found anywhere outside of Christ. Outside of him, you are desperately poor. In Christ, you are inexpressibly rich. It also shows us uh, that we uh, we are helpless until Christ comes our way to save us, until we are united to him, uh, we have nothing. I wonder if, there are, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Christ. You will not find God's pleasure. You will not find his blessings in any other religion. You will not find it in some abstract morality that you think you're a good person. If you do not have Christ You do not have his blessings. There is no other way to the Father except through him. We see his grace then in all this. Uh, His love is original. It's undeserved. It's unearned. It's a free goodness that God gives us. If he chooses us in Christ, if he blesses us in Christ, it means there was nothing in and of ourselves worth blessing, worth choosing. Our love, our praise is in response to him. We love because he first loved us. We bless because he first blessed us. And so, brothers and sisters, knowing that God has provided for you so perfectly in Christ Jesus, that if 
if you know how to use the blessings that he's laid up for you in Christ, you will be perfectly happy and lack nothing. Let us, let us come to this fountain of blessing that he has laid up for us and no other. Let us drink deeply from it and learn, uh, learn to seek his grace in Christ and not from ourselves, not try to earn it. The rest of this long sentence helps explain this wonderful verse, verse 3 more clearly, how God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The first, the first blessing that Paul describes, and there's no way for me to avoid it, is God's free choice of us. It's the doctrine of election. It says, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself. Paul, for, for some people, this is, they feel insulted by this uh, because we want, we want freedom. We want, to be cho- we want God to accept us because we've earned it. But here it says that very clearly, and this is a matter of great praise, we have been chosen by God. We have been predestined by God before the foundation of the world. If you look at yourself and you ask, why am I saved? Why am I a Christian? Why am I here, not someone else? You might say it's because you repented and put your trust in Christ. But why did you do this? If you take it a step, back, step further back, why did you do this when so many others have not? And if you trace this salvation down to its very foundation, you will find it lies nowhere else than this, God's free goodness in choosing us. It's not found in yourself at all. When did this happen? Before you were born. Before anyone was born. Before the foundation of the world. This foundation is is like this great structure that God is building in creation. And it has this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. It's a mystery to us, but God knows those who are his. He has chosen them before the world was created. A very comforting thing about this is that he was thinking of you for a long, long time. He waited for you for an eternity. I don't know, some of you have adopted or you're in the process of, of getting a, a child and you, you love that child before you, you've seen it. You prepare the room for that child or a baby that's about to be born. You, ha- you don't know what the baby looks like, but you prepare the room, you get the toys out, you love that child. You get everything ready. God loved you for an eternity before he saw you. He knew everything about you ahead of time, but he waited for you to pour out his love for you in, in time. That is, that is very humbling. That You have done nothing to deserve the grace that he's given you, but it's also very comforting. Now, some people might say, if if God has chosen me 
for salvation, then I, I can do whatever I want. That's what someone objected to Martin Luther. He said, Dr. Luther, if, if I believe what you're telling me, I'll do whatever I want to do. And Luther said, precisely. And as a child of God, what do you want? See, the doctrine of election does not promote uh, licentiousness. It does not promote sin. Only for those who don't understand it. Because when God adopts us, when God chooses us, he doesn't just choose us and set us free. He adopts us and also causes us to be born again by the Spirit within us. So we are born of living seed. We're changed. And when he chooses us, he also has laid out the whole plan of our sanctification so that it's this impossible prospect that someone could be chosen by God and never changed. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Those two go together. Here you see you have been chosen by God that you might be holy. That is the purpose. It says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. God did not choose you because you're holy. He chose you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Is it because God saw that that you would be good that you believed? No. Chapter 2 tells us that faith is a gift. Is it because that you were so lovely and worthy? No. For in order to save you, God had to send his son, as it were, into the slave markets to buy you back, to redeem the rebel that you were at such great cost. He paid for you with his own blood. So we see here our salvation is is all of grace alone, God's gracious unmerited love. John Calvin did not come up with this teaching. Augustine did not come up with this teaching. Paul did not even come up with this. Jesus himself said, you did not choose me, I chose you. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Even in the Old Testament, it was God who chose Abraham, God who chose Israel, and not Abraham who chose God, not Israel who chose God. All this is so that we might be holy. The foundation of election is simply God's love, but the immediate purpose of it is that you be changed, that you be made holy and blameless. And praise God, this will happen. Those whom God predestines, he glorifies. So election doesn't promote sin, it ensures holiness. God will change and sanctify those whom he has chosen. And so it is possible for you to deceive yourself and to say, I'm chosen, but then you show no fruit at all. In that case, you have no grounds to say that you're chosen. The evidence should be seen by our fruit. Now, predestination uh, is another way of saying just about the same thing. Election speaks of God's choice. Predestination speaks of his plan. And predestination implies a reason, a purpose. Here it is, we see it is in love. 
that he predestined us, a loving plan of God. And what was his purpose for you? It was adoption. God wanted to adopt you, to bring you into his family, to bring you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that is parallel to holiness. It seems a little bit strange. He elects us to holiness. He predestines us to adoption. But these things are together because when you are adopted, you are brought into conformity with Christ. This verse here I'm about to read to you from Romans 8, kind of the key to God's plan. Those, he, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's great plan in all of this is his glory, his praise, through uniting all things, conforming things to his son. As if all this creation is this great structure that's being built up from its foundation, this scaffolding that when it's removed, it has like a Christ shape to it that's left. It's the church that he's building. It's, that's his plan for, for East Bridge Presbyterian Church, is that you might grow to conformity to a mature man, that man being Christ Jesus. That you might be conformed to the image of his son, And that means holiness. That's what our adoption will look like. He doesn't just adopt us in name only and then we run away. But he trains us. He teaches us. He lovingly guides us, corrects us when we need it. So that Jesus might be, for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. This adoption was also a Roman practice, um, very common in the Roman world. Adoption as sons meant that the adopted child was an equal heir with the other sons in the family, that we we would be co-heirs with Christ. It also meant, though, a radical break with the child's previous life and identity. A new name was given to the person adopted, and all previous debts were erased. That's what happens when God adopts us. We're removed from our old way of life, our old master of sin, our old debts, our old obligations. They're done away with. And we are all men and women considered sons. And by that, I mean heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, in the Roman world, it would be the sons who are adopted. But Paul's saying, you're all sons, men and women. You are just like, please don't be offended at that any more than when I say you men are part of the bride of Christ. You are all sons in that we are all heirs with Christ. It's astounding, isn't it, that God would, would choose us and make us part of his family. My mom was adopted. And sometimes people might uh, try to make fun of her somehow for that. And she said, well, my, my parents chose me. They were stuck with you. But God chose you. He wants to be stuck with you. He loved you. 
and bought you at great cost. And if, if you could truly understand what it means to be a child and the heir of God, you would consider the might and the wealth of nations to be mere pocket change in comparison with your heavenly inheritance. What is the world to him who has heaven? What is heaven and earth to him who has Christ? Brothers and sisters, you have him, and in him you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So that Jesus Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. That is his purpose. I hope this morning as you read this, your minds are taken away from your your struggles that I know you have this week. Paul wants to show you something higher. He wants to raise your mind to the, the whole purpose of this world, the whole purpose of God's plan from beginning to end and to conform your will to it so that it would also be your goal to see Christ exalted, all things united in him, and to to break out in praise to the glory of his grace. Now, you might be asking yourself this morning, but how do I know I'm part of this plan? How do I know that I'm chosen? Can you climb up to heaven and check to see if your name is written in the book of life? No. Our salvation, though, does not, does not rest in the belief that we are elect. We are saved by faith in Christ Jesus, in whom we are elect. All that the Father has given to Christ will come to Christ. Have you come to Christ? Then you are elect in him. Everyone who the Father has given him will come to him, and no one who comes to him he will turn away. We don't need to see the book of life. If you have Christ, if you are resting on him, your name's there. He will by no means turn you away. And if you truly come to him for salvation, you are elect. That is why God has given you the faith to come to him in the first place. For faith and repentance, the love to Christ that you have, are the marks of all believers, of everyone who's elect. Brothers and sisters, how can we respond to this love? Think about this love. He loved us when we were unworthy simply because he loved us. He's given us blessing after blessing in Christ, not a small portion, but every blessing in him. He has not just poured out a little, but lavished us with riches of his grace for no other reason but his gracious love. Brothers and sisters, do you believe it? How can we respond to such love? We can never earn this grace. We cannot pay him back for this grace. Please don't ever think of your tithe or your offering as paying him back. But we can pursue that holiness for which he has called us. We can't align our will with his or pray that, that our will would be aligned with his. He wants us to be holy. That's his purpose in giving us the gifts. Then let us strive to be holy. Let us cast off the sin that so easily entangles us and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of this faith. 
Let us rearrange our goals, our activities perhaps, that we might be holy. I don't know what God's will is for you necessarily. I don't know who he wants you to marry, where he wants you to live. But I do know this. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. God wants you to be holy. This is why he has chosen you. So we can fix our eyes on the firstborn son, Jesus Christ, that we might be more and more conformed to him. And pray that God would make us more like him, godly and pleasing to him in every way. Finally, we can return thanks and praise to him in love. This is, our holiness is the immediate purpose, God's immediate goal, but the ultimate goal is that we would praise him to the praise of the glory of his grace. That we would bless him as Paul does here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has chosen us to holiness. He has predestined us to adoption, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. This is an amazing task that he's given himself to change us, to make us like Christ. If we really saw Christ in his glory, we would say, there's no way I deserve to be anywhere near this man. And yet God will not just bring us close, he will make us like Christ. Now, have you ever stopped to think about how hard it is for you to change even little habits? How hard it will be to even get up an hour earlier next Sunday. It's tough. We can't do anything without him. And yet God will change all those who trust in Christ for salvation, will raise us from the ash heap and cause us to sit with Christ on his throne. What an amazing thing. For he has elected us, he has elected us to holiness, predestined us to adoption as sons, John Stott tells this story, I believe it was some British school, uh, some, maybe a boys' school over there, and there was a chancellor that had been there, served there, long, distinguished career. Afterwards, his portrait was to be painted. And someone came, was commissioned to paint his portrait, and he did such a good job that the chancellor, looking at that painting, said, in years to come, people will not ask who is that man? They will say, who painted that picture? So it is with us, brothers and sisters. God is doing a work on you. He has a plan for you. Even if you don't know what you're going to be doing next week, he has a plan that's been in progress since the beginning of time to make you holy all to the praise of his glory, the praise of the painter. So imagine that one day we will be in heaven, a great multitude of men and women, if no one can count, all holy, all conformed to Christ's image. Men and women who were rebellious slaves and dirty with sin will shine out with, in holiness like stars in the heavens. And we will know this was Jesus' work. This was all his work to the praise of his glory. From beginning to end, every step of the way, 
This was his work. To God alone be the glory. Let us praise him. Lord, we ask that you would help us to love your plan, to, be, to not resist it, but to fix our, our hearts and desires for the things that you have laid up for us. We pray that you would make us holy, that you would make us set apart in Mount Pleasant, that people would know that we speak with a heavenly accent, that we live as citizens of heaven, that we might declare your praise here on earth before we get to declare it in heaven. Lord, make us holy. Lord, help us to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.